Yeah, and welcome to everyone who's watching on Facebook Live or will be watching on Facebook Live. Can you please send me some feedback, those of you who do uh, watch or maybe you watch after the, the message is over? We're using a new setup now, so you see you can see the content a little bit better than you used to before. Um, so let us know, those of you who are watching or who will watch, if you like it. And, uh, you know, any comments, criticisms helps us only to get better, all right? And this is part four of this series that we're looking at on the Lord's Prayer. How old were you when you first memorized the Lord's Prayer? Any of you, can you remember? 10? Do you still remember it? Yeah? Do you want to try it? So it's, it's what? Our? Okay, I'm losing you. Hallowed be your, hallow, or you used to say, hallowed be your name. Yeah. Thy, if you're King James, thy kingdom come. Did you do it that way? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And? Right? Give us this day our daily bread and? Good, good. 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 Whoa, Bible scholars. So when you, when you prayed the prayer, did you think about it or did you just pray it? See, this is my... This is my uh, my theory a lot of a lot of people a lot of a lot of people who profess to be christian people can pray that prayer and can recite that prayer but they don't think about what it really means they don't think about what jesus is trying to say there and what he's teaching there and it sort of becomes a bit of a robotic thing that we just put ourselves through and we don't really don't really consider okay what does that really mean you know and so that's what we've been doing the last few weeks. Um, and uh, the first lesson we learned was about persistence. Remember, Jesus talked about ask, seek, knock, ask, seek, knock. Nobody knocks on a door like this and walks away. There's a, this idea of persistence and perseverance. And Jesus says, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray, actually assuming that we do pray. And we looked at, uh, boy, it seems like ancient history now. But Mr. Tom Brady, who now has his sixth Super Bowl ring, and you heard it from me first uh, that he was going to win. Yeah, I see you. I see you looking the same way. I, I, I almost got the score correct, okay? I was off by six points, uh, but that's a picture of him from the combine in the year 2000 when he was a beanpole and a mediocre prospect. And uh, through persistence, however, um, he has now six Super Bowl rings. Um, and the, 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 Jesus told the story of this lady, this persistent widow who, who wanted justice from an unjust judge. And she just kept going and going and, and, and seeking justice in this, in this persevering fashion. And Jesus says, don't give up when you pray. And he tells the story of this lady. And then in lesson two, we talked about motives and methods People pray, 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 and sometimes they pray in an ineffective fashion because the way that they pray is, is off. It's off-center. And uh, there's an example uh, in, in China, of all places, of this 40-year-old this um, elementary school principal who changed the calisthenics program at his elementary school and brought in the shuffle dance instead of the usual calisthenics program. And it changed the whole atmosphere of the school, and it changed the students, and, uh, and it 
became very, very popular and was quite, uh, you know, viewed seven million times the clip in one day. He just changed the way that they were doing something. And Jesus is teaching, don't pray this way. And he gives a couple of examples. Don't be like the hypocrites who love to be seen by men. Uh, even his half-brother James talks about motivation. Don't pray with motives that are selfish. Uh, Jesus talks about the, the people who pray and they just babble on and on and on and they just blah, 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 blah. And they think because of their many, many words, they can somehow get God's attention. And he's saying, no, don't pray this way. Don't pray this way. Don't pray this way. And so there's a way to pray and a way not to pray. We talked about the difference between vain repetition uh, and perseverance. And Jesus has this statement, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Implication, when we pray, it's not for God's benefit as much as it is really for our benefit. And then last week we talked about start with God. So the beginning of the prayer, our father who is in heaven. Uh, so often when we pray the Lord's prayer, we do the exact thing that Jesus said not to do. Again, we have this robotic way, and we just say, well, let's pray. So, well, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer. I guess it'll work if we do it enough times, if we say it enough times, if we repeat it over and over and over again in any situation. Let's just pray the Lord's Prayer. You know, it's got to work. After all, it's the Lord's Prayer. Well, that's exactly what Jesus said not to do. That's using this vain repetition, even with this prayer that is a model for us. Uh, he doesn't want us to just repeat it by word. He wants us to pray this way, not repeat what I say, but pray this way. This is a model. This is a kind of a structure for the way that you can learn how to pray. And so he starts it this way, our Father in heaven, and we talked about two fancy words, imminent and transcendent. So imminent God is here, transcendent God is in heaven, is the two at the same time. Um, and we talked about the implications of all of that. You know, some people have a huge issue with calling God Father. Just the idea that we use this male term to refer to God really bothers people, especially in the hashtag Me Too movement and the hashtag Church Too movement, which is in the U.S. right now. And we talked about the kind of prevailing theories about God and views of God in the popular culture, pantheism, panentheism. We talked about those things. Uh, we talked about heaven a little bit. Have you thought about heaven recently? And we will get into that a little more today. And uh, this idea of, hey, hallowed be your name. That means holy, set apart. Do you realize who you are talking to when you talk to God? So today uh, in lesson four, we're going to get deeper into this prayer. And the lesson for today, discipline yourself uh, to God's priorities discipline yourself to God's priorities. First of all, being a Christian is not just, well, now I know, just tell me the minimum requirements I need to know to go to heaven. That's not what a Christian is, okay? We have in some ways transformed Christianity into tell me the minimum requirements I need to go to heaven and that's all I need to know. Just give me the bare bones, just the facts, ma'am, and that's all I need to know. I mean, how many of you are married in this room? Okay, so when you, when you got married, what did you say to your, your spouse, just tell me the absolute minimum that we need, you know, to, to, to get married and to love each other. Just tell me the bare bones, 
<laughs> you didn't approach the whole relationship like that, right? But we often approach our relationship with God that way. We say, well, just tell me the bare, bo bare bones to make it into heaven. No, it's about becoming a disciple of Jesus. That means a follower of Jesus. And this is what he's calling people to. He's not calling them simply to conversion. He's calling them beyond the, well, you prayed the prayer some Sunday morning, and so that makes you a Christian. No. Are you a disciple? Are you a follower? And what disciples do is they learn from Jesus. Uh, so discipline yourself to God's priorities. What does he say in the beginning of this prayer? Our Father who is in heaven. So you start with God. And then he says, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven whose will is it your will as the person who's praying or is it god's will there's a right and a wrong answer is it who is when he says your will be done whose will is it the person who's praying or the or the person or god how many of you say the person who's praying well how many of you say god Okay, I, I, maybe I'm asking the question wrong. When he says, your kingdom come, whose kingdom? God's kingdom or my kingdom? It's God's kingdom. When he says, your will be done, is it God's will or my will? It's God's will. So whose priorities are we talking about? My priorities or God's priorities? We're talking about God's priorities. So we're thinking more about what he wants, more about what he's doing than what we're doing. And typically, we do the absolute reverse. We go to God with, I want this, I need this, I want this, I need this, I need this, and I'll even throw some Bible verses in to show you how, how spiritual I am. So, so God, I need a job, and uh, Philippians, you're the pr provider, and uh, God, I need a spouse, and, uh, you know, uh, I'll throw in a scripture verse there. Uh, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Ha <laughs> ha. See, I know a psalm. I know a passage from Philippians. So, God, you've got to give me, because I'm quoting your word back to you. So, you should be impressed by that, right? Again, this is the very same thing that Jesus says not to do. <laughs> so, at the beginning of the prayer, first you start with God, and then you move to his priorities, his will, before you start talking about yourself, before you start thinking about all of your things that you need and all the things that you want, it's, well, okay, hold on here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What in the world is he talking about? These words have all kinds of implication today in the 21st century, and the way we think about them may not be the way that Jesus is thinking about them in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, right? So we'll break it down. Your kingdom come. What's a kingdom? Goodness, are we talking about like a political system? So what, Jesus is saying pray for what? Uh, well, a democracy? We want a democracy on earth? Is he a king? He's a kingdom? What is he a... Uh, is he a communist? Is, he, is this an autocratic government? Is this like the queen of England and Canada kind of thing? What does he mean when he says a, a kingdom, your kingdom come? Jesus says when you pray, you pray your kingdom for God's kingdom to come. Well, what kind of king is God? What does this word even mean? So to, to, to make it simple, every one of you in this room, including Dylan at the back in his mother's arms. 
Every one of you in this room has a kingdom. Every one of you does. It is, this is the best definition I've heard. This is from the late theologian Dallas Willard. And he says it this way, it is the range of your effective will. That is your kingdom. And even Dylan has one because you can watch little children and they quickly begin to see what the range of their effective will is. They begin to see, oh, I can put this in my mouth now. I can put my feet in my mouth now. Oh, that's very interesting. So this is the range of what I can do and what I want to do. And if you have many children and you observe the way that they interact with one another, you see each one of them has their own kingdom. And when one of them crosses into the other one's kingdom, it can be a conflict, right? So if you go on a road trip and you put the kids in the back seat, one kid is on this side and they will stay usually in the same seat, the same side in the car. This is their seat. The next one, this is their seat. The next one, this is their seat. And when they start to cross over certain lines that you cannot see, that's when you're impinging on their, you're going into their kingdom. And you see it with children. You see it with adults. It's the range of your effective will. This is your kingdom. So lest we get turned off by the word because of current politics and, you know, what's going around going on in the world, this is what Jesus is referring to when he says this word kingdom. It's the range of the will of God, if you will. And this is something that everyone has. So when he says you want to pray for God's kingdom to come, it's like saying you want to pray for the range of God's effective will to come here. You want, you want this idea of what God wants to do, what God's priorities are to be present in, in this world that we live in. So when you talk about a kingdom and you look through just the gospel of Matthew, because this is what we're reading out of today, say, well, what is this talking about just in Matthew alone? You see that this is something that, that John the Baptist anticipated. So he said, repent for the kingdom of God is near. So he's warning people, the range of God's effective will is coming. And you need to get your lives right before God because he's going to step into the scene and his kingdom is going to come. You're going to see what's going to happen in a very short period of time. He warned people his was a, was a, a message of repentance. He's anticipating this kingdom to come. And then you see when Jesus steps onto the scene, he's preaching the good news of the kingdom kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom of God over and over and over again. In Matthew, you'll see it more the kingdom of heaven. Uh, some people say that the reason why Matthew avoids the word God there is because he's writing to a Jewish audience. They didn't pronounce the, the, the name of God orally. They barely wrote it down. Um, and so he replaces it with heaven, but it's the same term. So when you see in the Gospels, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, it's referring to the same thing. So it's inaugurated by Jesus. He says, here, I'm bringing the kingdom in. And he does things to demonstrate that. He does the miraculous to demonstrate that. But here's where we get a little bit tripped up. And here's where, here's where I need um, 
I need your attention a bit. It's, it's, it's inaugurated by Jesus, but it's consummated at his second coming. What do I mean by this? We see the, the, the effect of the kingdom of God in this world in part it, because it has been brought in by Jesus. We will not see it in full. We will not see the range of God's effective will in a fully manifested sense until the second coming of Christ. And this is why I argue that people, church people, need to be thinking about the second coming a whole lot more than we typically do. A hundred years ago, people thought about it a lot more. They preached about it a lot more 2,000 years ago. I mean, the, the New Testament is in itself a document that is anticipating the second coming. There's so much hope in here. These people thought that the second coming of Jesus was going to happen likely in their lifetime. Let me show you a couple of pictures to try and illustrate this for you. This is like the third time that I've gone through this in, in this church. Um, in this diagram, I have airlifted out of Dr. Gordon Fee's amazing book, uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. If you can find Gordon Fee, on Right Now Media, just remember that name and do a search for him. I don't know if they have any content from him, but he's an amazing theologian, Dr. Gordon Fee, and he pictures it this way. And he says, this is what the Jewish people thought at the time of Jesus. Uh, you, they thought, you see that word, the end there in red, they thought that they were living on the edge of the end of the world. This was their view. So the time that they were living in was right teeter-tottering on the edge. So in their view, the, the age was, it was Satan's time. It was a time of bondage. They themselves were, were under the authority, the rulership of Rome. It was a time when sin reigns over planet Earth, reigns in the hearts of people, where we see sickness, where we see even things like demonic possession, where we see injustice, we see evil men triumph. And the hope of these people was that when the Messiah came, he would bring them into this thing, the age to come. And you need to know also that when Jesus came and announced himself as being the Messiah, he wasn't the only one to do that. There are, I think, dozens of self-proclaimed messiahs in the time of Jesus. Some of them are a little more famous than others. Of course, Jesus is the only one who's lasted for 2,000 years. But there were dozens of them. That's because there was a fever pitch of expectation that the messiah was going to come and bring in this age to come. The time of God's rule. The time where the kingdom of God would finally invade this world and everything would be changed and finally the the presence of the holy spirit would be all over the the planet and righteousness would reign and there would be health and there would be peace and evil would no longer triumph and all of these things and so they believed that they were right on the edge of time not only the people in the new testament we can find writings from that that relative time uh, from people like the Essenes and the community at the, in Qumran in the Middle East, and they had the fascination with the end of the world. I've, I've sat in front of the documents that they've written, and they had a fascination with the end of the world. There's so much literature floating around back then because they were expecting this to come. And then, of course, you have Jesus, and he steps onto the scene in the Gospels, and he's doing the exact thing that they would expect the Messiah to do. 
I mean, he's driving demons out of people. He's raising the dead. He's confronting the, the, the Roman government. And he, I mean, he's, he's, he's upsetting the apple cart. And they're saying, oh, maybe this is it. This is the guy. This is the time. This is it. We're about to cross over that line there. And we're moving into the age to come. Finally, we've been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years. Finally, finally, maybe it's here. And something happens, he dies. He goes on to a, what, a cross? And this would have been just like totally outside of what their understanding would be of a messianic figure. Jesus, who, who talks about being the son of man, the Messiah, goes on to a cross. He gets crucified. I mean, he dies a criminal's death. He doesn't resist it. This is not, there's no, took, took everybody by surprise. And still to this day, and I've said this before, the Jewish people reject Jesus as their Messiah for that reason. Messiahs do not go up on crosses. Uh, Forty years after Jesus died, the, the temple itself was torn down. Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Th these kinds of things do not happen when Messiahs step into the world. Okay, the opposite is supposed to happen. So Jesus comes, he dies on the cross, the lights go out. Wow. Three days later, however, he rises from the dead. So, okay, maybe the lights are on. Maybe, uh, maybe I mean, and they're looking, and even when, when Jesus comes back from, from death itself, what do they say to him in the book of Acts? They say, are you at this time going to bring in the kingdom are you at this time is is now when it's going to happen so maybe you wanted to prove that you were you were the conqueror even over death itself and now you're gonna everything is going to change is this now the time and jesus's reply is startling he says it's not for you to know the time that the father has set by his own authority but you will receive power and the holy spirit comes on you and then he leaves again Wow, what a, I mean, it's totally backwards to what they thought. And this is what the New Testament is teaching. When we read it, we see, okay, we have the age that people were living in right up till the cross and the resurrection. And when you have the cross and the resurrection, something starts. You're not crossing over into the end of time, but the end of time is like a period of time. And it begins with the cross and the resurrection, and it will end at the second coming, you see? And you're living in an in-between time. So in that in-between time, yeah, you have righteousness. Yes, you have peace. Yes, you see healings. Yes, you see the presence of the Spirit, but certainly not in full. Not in every single situation, not in every single moment, not the way that we want it to be. It's not, it's in part, it's, it's, it's a, sh a shadow of what is to come. And then we're waiting for the not yet, for all this stuff to be completed, for completed righteousness, full peace, no sickness, no death. Uh, revelation speaks of this time to come. So we're, and you and I are living in that in that period of the end. It's a long period of time. So it's not something that you skip into. It's a long period of time. And then will come the coming of the Lord. And then will be this never-ending kingdom. And then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth as per revelation and so on. Do you see the difference? But when people are praying, your kingdom come, what we're praying is, hey, we want this to come. 
This is what we're looking for. This is what we want. We want your kingdom, the range of your effective will to come. We're saying, God, come. Jesus, come. Clean it up, if you will, if you want to use that terminology. So this is what we're praying about. Uh, when we say that that uh, that phrase, and then we then we have this kind of continuation: Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, you've got a few things going on there. Just talking about heaven for a second, because he's distinguishing in the prayer, isn't he, between earth and heaven? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Implication: Heaven is not earth. It's a different. It's a different place. And we need, to, we need to think about that. We did a little bit last week. Um, when you think about heaven and you look at what Jesus taught about heaven, fire some, fire some things that you know back at me. What did Jesus teach about heaven? Can you think of anything? The streets are paved with gold, okay? Jesus didn't teach it, but it's in Revelation, Yeah. I thought so. Search, search, your, search your deepest thoughts. Yes? The lamb and the lion will live together. Okay, Jesus didn't teach that, but it's in the book of Isaiah. Yeah, Jesus would have believed it. It's in the book of Isaiah. But what can you think of that Jesus specifically taught about heaven? This is no surprise that, you, that no hands are going up because people rarely meditate about this. They rarely think to themselves, well, what did Jesus himself have to say about heaven? Pardon? It's hard to get in. That's true. Jesus did say it's hard to get in. He did. In fact, he made a sarcastic joke about it. Do you know the joke? A very sarcastic joke. Do you know what the joke is? Uh-huh, that's right. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than to enter the kingdom of God, okay, which, which has as a part of it heaven. Heaven is, is part of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is saying, it's hard to get in. It's hard. I mean, imagine, imagine trying to shove a camel through the eye of a needle. Okay, this is a sarcastic joke that he's making to the people back then, and they would have scratched their heads and said, wow, what's he asking for? That's really, really hard. He said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So he said, it's hard to get in, yeah? Yeah, okay, uh, Jesus did say that in the Gospel of Luke. He says, he says, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. You can't say it's here or it's there, for it's within you. Yeah, he did say that. That's referring to the broader thing, the kingdom of God, but that's true. He did say that. Yeah. I mean, if you just look at the context of, of the prayer itself, we learn something about, about heaven. So, our Father in heaven. So, where's the Father? He's in heaven. <laughs> so what, what we know just from the immediate context of the prayer, that's where the Father is, apparently. He's in heaven. Now, people used to think that, that when, when, uh, when the Bible's teaching about heaven, they thought, well, that means, I guess, if we go high enough, we'll see heaven and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll meet God. If we can build something that goes up into space high enough, eventually we'll meet God. 
And there were people when, you know, space travel and all that started to happen. They said, well, we went up real high. We didn't see God. I guess there's no God. Okay, this is not really what the Bible is teaching, and it's certainly not what Jesus is teaching. Heaven is not, it's not part of what we understand in this kind of, uh, this, this world and the way that it's created. It's, it's, a, it's a supernatural thing. So it's got supernatural stuff all over it when you look at the way Jesus refers to heaven. Um, so it's not, well, let's go high enough into space and eventually we'll get to heaven. No, it's, this is where the Father lives. It's where God lives. This is, and you say, well, isn't God everywhere all the time? Yes, but where can you see God face to face? Where can you see him eye to eye? Where can you experience him soul to soul without any barrier, without any block, without anything impeding you? Well, it's in heaven. And Paul would expand on this. And he would talk about how we are perishable, how we are mortal, how we are dying, as it were, and that the imperishable cannot be inherited by the perishable. So we cannot experience immortality because we are perishing. And so he, what he's teaching there in, in, in Corinthians is that when we pass from this life, when we, as I like to say sometimes, go through the curtain, that is the doorway into the imperishable. And he talks about how one day the perishable will inherit the imperishable. How one day the mortal will inherit immortality. I'll tell you a funny joke. Um, I was doing a funeral one time. At, I was at a graveside. And it was so, so, so cold at that graveside. And typically at a graveside service, you, you, you read from that passage in Corinthians, the mortal will inherit immortality. I don't know if you've ever been to a graveside service and you've heard a preacher say that, or maybe you've seen it on television. The mortal will inherit the immortal. And, and it was so cold outside, I said, the mortal will inherit immorality. <laughs> I said that at the graveside. Nobody caught it, but I quickly corrected it that I couldn't intonate. It was a Quebec. It was like minus 25 with the wind and the cold. I, I, but that's not, when, when Paul said, he said, the mortal will inherit immortality, something that doesn't die, something that's from a different order. So the father lives in heaven. That's where he is in the sense of where can you see him? Where can you experience him? Eye to eye, soul to soul, to soul face to face. Because now we can't because we're perishable and he is imperishable. And Paul, he expands on this idea and he says, one day it's the place where not only the father lives, but it's the place where you will live also. Oh, that is rich. That's such, such good news. If you try and follow this idea of heaven and the afterlife through the whole Bible, you will see that it's, it's kind of progressively given to us. You've got to read the whole thing to see it. And you see it's ultimately expanded on by the Apostle Paul. And he talks to the Corinthians um, in 2 Corinthians, and he, and he, he says this. I'll, I'll dig up the passage for you. Uh, again, this is what we typically read in, in funerals and in gravesides. But, but listen to these words. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, Paul referring to the body as a tent. He was a tent maker in his day job, if you will. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building 
from God, an eternal house in heaven. This is where the Father lives, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan and we long to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, with the immortal. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, again, using that tent as an image that he was familiar with, while we are in this tent, we groan and we are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed as we are now, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Remember, we sang about the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, he says, and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So right now, you and I, we are in the body, but away from the Lord. We don't see him face to face. We don't see him eyeball to eyeball. We don't see him soul to soul. We are in the body and away from the Lord. We live by faith and not by sight. Have any of you ever seen God? No. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be, what? Away from the body and at home with the Lord. So when you're here, you're not there. When you're there, you're not here. So it is the place where God lives and the place where one day you and I will live also. And that should give us great hope, my friends. That should give us great joy. That should give us great anticipation. Uh, I don't know if it does for you, but it certainly does for me because I've done plenty, plenty of funerals and stood by plenty of gravesides. Just this week, there was uh, uh, in our own church someone whose, whose life was affected by this. Some of you know Diana. Some of you do not know her. Um, and her husband passed away at the age of 63 just a couple of days ago. And I remember just on Tuesday night, she, she called me in, you know, fairly late at night and told me that the doctors had said that he had just maybe hours to live. He, he was working in, in Africa. I forget which... Uh, which country, I think it was Botswana, but I can't remember. And he had become very, very ill and, you know, works there, I think, half the year. And he'd become very, very, very ill. And uh, they had to, they had to uh, air transport him to, all the way back to Canada, to Montreal, to be treated. He was very, very sick. And he was hospitalized, was still conscious, was still, you know, doing everything. But his liver was, was, uh, he, he was very sick and it was starting to shut down. And we started to pray for him, and the, the prayer team that's, uh, that's in this church was praying for him. And, and then she called me on, or texted me on Tuesday night, called me, I forget which, and she said, you, you need to come to the hospital because everything has imploded. His kidneys are not working, his liver is not working, and he has maybe hours to live, they said. And, and so I said, okay, tell me about him. On the, on the phone we were talking, she said, tell me about him. She said, Pastor, I want you to know that he, he knows the whole gospel story, he hasn't been in church for a while, but he knows the whole thing. And I want you to know that before he got on that plane to come all the way back to Canada, 
I was able to pray with my husband and I was able to pray and to, to lead him to Christ personally on the phone because I did not know what was going to happen. And I was able to kind of, you know, she kind of reconnected with him and, and got him to think about those things that maybe he had put aside for a while. And she said, I just want you to know that pastor. And I said, okay, I'm coming. And I made it down to the to the Jewish General Hospital in the ICU, and there was nine, ten of his family members all around. He's hooked up to about six machines, being kept alive, and it just—he just looked awful. Just looked like it was—it was going to end very, very quickly. And I was able to take him by the hand, and I was able to go right up close to his to his ear and to pray with him, and to pray with the family, and stayed with them for a couple of hours, and, and left just after midnight. And the prayer team kept on praying and praying, and. You know, he fought and he labored, I think, and he rallied for a couple of days, but he passed away, uh, I think, just whatever it was, two nights ago. And uh, I don't know when the funeral will be. Maybe this coming Saturday. We'll see. I will let everybody know. But she told me about how it happened and how, you know, what, what was going on in the room when he passed away and how she was able to, to play worship songs in the hospital room and to sing and to to affirm the confidence that she had in Christ in front of her whole family, uh, many of whom are, you know, not church-going folks. And the confidence that this lady has and the assurance that she has, it's right out of the pages of the New Testament. It's right out of here. Let me tell you, folks, we're not dealing with myth and, and, and fairy tale when we talk about heaven. It is the place where God lives and it is the place where you and I will live one day also when we are in Christ. And this is the hope that we have. This is why we can face life. This is why we can face death. We can face whatever circumstance because we serve one who has defeated death itself. A hundred years ago in a church of our stripe, you'd have people jumping up and down and waving their handkerchief when you say stuff like that. Now we're sitting and thinking about, is it real? Is it real? Let me tell you, it is as real as the seat that you are sitting on. If only we thought about it more often, the place where we will live. And Jesus says, you pray this way, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here is the big mistake that we make about this prayer. And this is very prevalent right now in charismatic circles, in churches where they believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is very prevalent. Seems to come and go, I've noticed, this teaching. And people say, well, you know, in heaven, there's no sickness. So we, don't, we want no sickness here. In heaven, there's no this, so we want to know this here. And they say, well, what, what we're really praying for is that we want to duplicate the conditions of heaven here on earth. Isn't that what Jesus meant? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, and I asked the, I asked the person there, I said, well, did you know that there's no marriage in heaven? Jesus said that. He said, in, in heaven, there'll be no marriage, no people given in marriage. So there's not going to be weddings. There's not going to be like the whole thing changes in heaven. He said, did you know that? Single person who wants to get married, you know there's no marriage in heaven? He said, oh, I didn't know that. He said, you sure you want everything in heaven to be here now? You sure you want that? This is not what Jesus is saying. And sometimes people pray for the sick and they say that. I've made the mistake. I, I'm sure I have. We say, well, Lord, there's no of whatever sickness in, in heaven. So we pray that that would be here and that your will would be done here as it is there. What is he really teaching? He's not saying make things on earth as they are in heaven. 
Is this not what Jesus is saying? Read the prayer very carefully. He's saying your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So think about that for a moment. Heaven is the place, as it were, where where the Father lives. Do you think that what he wants to get done over there gets done? Absolutely it gets done. It gets done without resistance. It gets gets done without impedance. It gets done without other kingdoms, you know, getting in the way. It, It what he wants to be done in heaven, for sure it gets done. There's no blockage there, right? This is the place where he lives. Well, what we're praying is we're saying, God, we want your will, the range of your effective will, your kingdom, that whole thing. We want your will to be done here without impedance, without resistance, without it being thwarted by all these different kingdoms that are competing with yours. Do you know who's blocking the will of God on earth? Some say Satan, yeah, the Bible does teach, teach that, yeah. You know who else is blocking the will of God on earth? You say, well, I thought God's will always gets done on earth. Well, yeah, it does in a roundabout sort of way. Sure it does. He kind of has to go around all these things because there's a certain kingdom that gets in the way. It's not only Satan's kingdom. Whose kingdom is it? It's not, it's not Donald Trump's kingdom. <laughs> okay. Hmm? Our own Yep, my kingdom gets in the way of God's kingdom. Your kingdom gets in the way of God's kingdom. Our kingdoms and our free will to do with with them what we want blocks what God wants to do often. We're the ones who often are in the way. And that's why when we start this prayer, we start it with God and we start it with his priorities and what he wants Because oftentimes the ones who are in the way are us. And God has given us the ability to do that. He's given us the free will to oppose him. He's given us that. And sure, there's uh, the Bible teaches this whole thing of the kingdom of darkness and this whole concept of spiritual warfare and all of that. This also tries to thwart the plans and the purposes of God. We see it in the New Testament. We see Paul trying to do something and he feels like he's been blocked He feels like he's been opposed by that whole thing and that whole kingdom of darkness. But ultimately, what we're praying for is, God, we want what you want to be done. We want it to be done without hindrance. We want it to be done without impedance. We want it to be done without resistance. That's what we want. It's not, well, there's healing there, so there has to be healing here. No, it's your will. Whatever your will is, God. As easy as it gets done up there where you live, we want it to be done that way here. Your plans, your will, unthwarted, unblocked, not resisted, not impeded by other kingdoms, including, including our own. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wow. That changes your whole understanding of the Lord's Prayer when you start looking at it that way.